Thanksgiving. I hope that however you were able to make time, it was an opportunity for you to both look inward and outward and appreciate. Okay, I'm going to make a promise not to touch the pulpit and we'll move forward from here that it was a time for you to appreciate the many ways that often go underappreciated throughout the year, maybe because the gifts of God have come to you so frequently and regularly, you might lose sight of the extraordinary grace by which they come. And today is just one of those days we may take for granted the incredible leadership and capability of this congregation and those who lead it to draw us close not only together, but to draw us close to the very presence of God and to make us aware, acutely aware in all of our senses, how God is moving in and through and around by the power of the Holy Spirit. As we begin today, it is with profound appreciation. And it is uh, an opportunity for me to make two kind of quick corrections. One is my fault, and I've just got to wipe the egg off my face. The day trippers are traveling on December the 15th, not the 18th. That's very important. I will welcome you on the 18th, but it will be an ordinary Monday otherwise, and I will put you to work. If you want to have fun and you want all the amazing food at the Robin's Nest and you want to enjoy what the Rudy Theater does at Christmas, which is really a great show, then please, please, please contact Harriet and be prepared to travel on the 15th. The second is to follow through on a commitment that I made last week. And I want to repeat it at least once more, prompted, if nothing else, by the presence of Lily, who was to my right, to your left, and Alasia, uh, who are friends that we have made and connected deeply with through the ministry of what is now kind of known as Sunday nights. I kind of like to think of it as Yates 2.0. And what's happening in those times is really extraordinary. And Lily and Alasia are just but two examples of the growing faith that's happening in our young people and households in our neighborhood as we have cast the net ever wider. And so I invite you to pray with me for what will happen tonight when those youth meet again. Let's pray. Almighty God, we give you Thanks for the gift of this morning and for all that you are doing here and now. And we know that you are already making space for extraordinary things to happen in and through all of the young lives who will gather this evening. Be with each one and be with their households that their daily needs may be met and their spiritual food be found in abundance as they learn about you, as they make their own commitments and seek to follow Jesus in the world. May it be so. Bless them this evening and every day in Jesus' name. Amen. And I invite you to turn in your Bibles now to the letter to the Ephesians in the New Testament, chapter 1. We'll be reading verses 15 through 23. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 15 through 23. For this reason, 
ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all God's people, I have not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people and his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the age to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. May God bless the reading and the hearing of the word today. You may have noticed over time when Danny is leading, very often when called upon to pray, he does not pray extemporaneously and he doesn't pray in his own words, but instead, like many of us, yokes himself to powerful words of prayer that have been penned by others along the way, some of them very ancient and some of them more contemporary. I think we all do that sometimes if we run into someone else's prayer that hits us at just the right time in just the right way. I have a couple. There's one that's called The Prayer of Abandonment by Thomas Merton, a 20th century writer and contemplative and teacher. And it hit me at a time when I felt profoundly lost, empty, and in need of more, and I knew I could not provide it for myself. And this prayer begins this way. By Lord God, I have no idea where I am going. And he had me yet. I have no idea where I am going. And the prayer unfolds from that starting point. I've also been profoundly impacted by a much older prayer by a contemplative named Meister Eckhart from the Middle Ages, a German priest. And he simply said, and it's probably very appropriate here on the other side of Thanksgiving, if the only prayer you would ever say in your entire life is thank you, that would be enough. Today we read another prayer. This prayer is from the Apostle Paul. He's writing to the church in Ephesus. And he's writing as a pastor who misses his church. And he's worried about his church. Scripture tells us that Paul spent the longest stretch of ministry that he spent in any one place in Ephesus, probably about three years. And he worked there. And he taught there. And he helped build up the church there. He spoke in synagogues. And he spoke in public places. And he worked sharing his beliefs, and sometimes even performing signs and wonders in front of people. And those teachings attracted followers of Jesus, to be sure, and it also attracted a lot of opposition. 
And Paul's ministry in Ephesus eventually brings him into conflict with the local beliefs, and particularly with the silversmiths' guild, because Ephesus was a center of pilgrimage and worship for the goddess Artemis. And there was a lot of money to be made in silver amulets and silver statues and all things Artemis. And if Paul is preaching a gospel of a God who requires no idols, who requires no such veneration, it's bad for business. And as, you know, sometimes they say, you go from preaching to meddling. Paul had gone from preaching to meddling the second their pocketbooks were involved. And so the city is turned on its edge. There's an uproar, a riot, and Paul is no longer safe in Ephesus and wisely decides to leave. And so the book of Acts then tells of a very touching and very heartfelt farewell with the Ephesian leaders. And he encourages them in his absence to remain faithful to the teachings of Jesus. He reminds them of the hard work and the integrity and the dedication that he invested in serving them and invites them to live that same life with the people. Keep the church together. Keep it strong. And despite all of those challenges, Paul knows. He's confident that their future and their commitment to God will remain intact. Paul leaves Ephesus, and he continues his mission of preaching. But the church that was planted and supported for so long by him is not far from his heart. And this is true for any of us who have been entrusted with the sacred capacity and the sacred responsibility of shepherding any sort of flock. He's left the work now to those leaders in Ephesus, and that's really a healthy choice. I look back over the last couple of weeks here at Yates, and I have marveled at some of the things that other folks might consider a little more mundane. Amazing and marvel because the leadership capacity in this church has just risen up in some really profound ways. We had a great business meeting last week. How do you define great in a business meeting? Well, it's not the absence of conflict, and it's not the absence of disagreement. A great business meeting is not characterized by a unanimous vote. A great business meeting is characterized by everyone understanding their role, doing their job, and being there on time and prepared to engage the business of the church so that our budgets in our nominating process and the deacon, servant leadership for the next year, all of that was presented and everyone was prepared, and it was amazing. The sanctuary got decorated last Sunday night, and it's beautiful. Next week, the poinsettias that you all contributed are going to adorn this. It's going to finish it out just right. But this space, in between business meeting and recitals and other uses of the space, choir practice and everything else, was decorated. Thank you, Pam, and thank you for all those who came along with the Chrismon Committee. As you leave today, you can pick up a print copy of the Advent devotional books that were prepared by this congregation to bless and strengthen your own personal internal transformation as you prepare for Christmas. Just like we transformed this space, so there is internal work to be done. Thank you, Lynn, for coordinating that, and thank you to all who wrote 
You can also get it electronically, just let the church office know. The welcome space, I don't know if you noticed, uh, has been revitalized. We put a bigger table out there so that we could tell the eighth story a little better. And there you can find a little bit of everything that you need. And if you are a newer friend of the fellowship or you are a first-time guest, there are bags that have been assembled with all sorts of things, not only to tell you about the church, but also some candy and a Bible and all sorts of gifts that we don't know how else to, to share a bit of ourselves with you in a way you can carry home right away. But that's done. Our deacons of the week have recommitted themselves not only to these functions of leadership, but also to be representative faces and voices each and every week for the church. All of this is happening, and it's happened recently. And you know who had very little to do with it? Me. All of these stories that I've told are stories of congregational leaders owning the processes that matter in the church, whether it is the functional administrative processes or the very heartfelt and earnest outreach to welcome any and all who might find a home here at Yates. Paul worries about the Ephesians, of course. Like most pastors, he worries, of course, about the external forces that might come in and put pressure on the church in some way or another. After all, he himself was a victim of riot and violence and had to flee. He knows that sometimes it is not safe to be the church before a watching world. And he worries about those forces and the kind of pressure that it might exert on the church. And he worries, too, about the subtler, more internal pressures, I think. You may have noticed over the last couple of weeks I made a decision to inflict a lot of numbers on you. Goals, really. And one of the things that I've been trying to cultivate is a sense of awareness of where we are and where we could be. And the only way that I can do that is to do that quantitatively. So I'll say we've been averaging about 120, 130 in worship. We can, we can get to 150. You know how to do that. Or we present a budget and say, we project, I think Mike English had very business-like, we project reasonably that this is the revenue that might come in in 2024. And we present monthly reports and we'll have an end-of-year summary of the way our revenues and our budget and our expenses and our giving and all of those things take place. And of course, we don't want to go into the hole. Tiffany looked us in the eye from that screen and said, we need 50 coats. That kind of specificity really helps because it gives us something to shoot for. It calibrates our senses. But there is a temptation always and forever to become so consumed with the goal for the goal's sake that let's say we meet the budget and collect $690,001, right? next year in 2024. Or let's say we collect $5,001 for global missions. Or let's say we, have a, we average 151 on Sunday, every Sunday in December. We might be tempted just to pat ourselves on the back and say, good for us, look at what we did, and go merrily on our way, unchanged and untransformed. Don't be deceived by the 
extra, these goals, these quantities that we might be putting out to calibrate our expectations and maybe to motivate us to deeper service. What we are trying to cultivate by establishing a goal-oriented culture here with all of these invitations is to open ourselves up to a deeper work that God is doing. Ultimately, what we want to do is to encourage you, and yes, to challenge each and every one of you to dig more deeply and to learn to trust God in those actions that really matter in your life. And that's why, like Paul, we can look at one another and talk together honestly and compassionately. You can do both at the same time about things like how you spend your time, or how you spend your money, or your kind of engagement and what you need, or the level of your participation. I am the last person who wants to cultivate any sort of burnout here. I certainly don't want to encourage any poverty here. The point is not to gather as many people in and just squeeze you out until you're dry and empty husks so that ultimately you leave disappointed and hurt. But instead, I want us all to practice together, holding your life open and holding your life loosely enough so that you can experience the discomfort that comes from that kind of risk and the incredible vitality and energy that you can experience in trying something new and going a little further and taking a bigger risk, not like throwing yourself off a cliff, but instead to stretch and discover that though you could not accomplish that alone, together by the power of the Holy Spirit, this church, a chosen people, when it chooses to do something, is capable of extraordinary things. Extraordinary things. And the only way we can do that is to practice it because it's practice that makes you competent and confident Christians. Mary Martha, an amazing player. She did not wake up one day at the age of 10 and start playing that way. How many hours in the studio? How many hours at home just to get ready for Sunday morning, week after week? Nothing worth sharing like that comes without practice disciplined practice and that's what we are disciples practicing the way of Jesus and I often tell the students that I shepherd in ministry they may be seminarians or or maybe a little earlier in their career path than I am that the only way you can really discover to do how to do the things that matter most in church is by doing them because you can read a lot of books about how to conduct a funeral or how to sit by a dying person's bedside, or how to share in the loneliness and dejection of a, of a person who's really, really lost, or how you are going to do baptisms, whatever it may be. The only way you can do it is by doing it. And that's what the church is about. We are the kind of place that works through practice toward those things that matter, that make us more and more Christ-like. And Paul worries, I think, like all of us, that if we become so consumed 
with those external markers, measures, and appearances, they may be ends unto themselves. But next week, Advent begins. It's Advent Eve. Thank you, Ted. I'm never going to forget that. I've never heard it that way before, but it's always going to be in my mind. It's Advent Eve. And we are on the cusp of pondering now the great mystery of a God who empathizes with God's own creation. A God who pours God's own self into flesh and into history and in presence and in action shows us what the great words of the church really mean. We call that the incarnation, the infleshment. And so Jesus is faith incarnate and hope incarnate and joy incarnate and love incarnate, word incarnate. And I'm praying already that the Holy Spirit is going to give us all ears to hear and hearts to receive and lives that will respond in action to all of that. Paul prays for his church as pastors do. And he expresses to them in verses 15 and 16 his ongoing remembrance and fondness for the church. And he draws special attention to their faith and to their love. Paul says that this remembrance and this prayer is based on what he has heard about them. It's a reminder that faith, at least the way we talk about it in church, is not something that we can just reduce to some sort of mental assent to a specific formula or to a specific creed. But instead, faith is an active trust in what God has done. It's an active trust in what God will do. It's a life that we participate in, that we respond to, and we reflect ultimately about what God has already done. It's always worth asking, do people hear of your faith? Do people hear of Yeats's faith? And he continues in this prayer, praying with great confidence in verses 17 through 19, that God will make known to the church God's own wisdom and riches and hope and power. These are great gifts for a community. These are gifts that will be worked out between us and among us out loud in the world as we continue to relate in unity with one another. Not uniformity and not unanimity, but a certain stubborn unity that hangs together because we look beyond our own self-interest to the one in whose name we continue to gather and continue to devote our lives, and continue to serve in the world. Paul's confident about this in his prayer, and it's drawn from what he knows God has done, that God has acted for the church as God has acted for God's creation. And the church is, in many ways, the ongoing, tangible flesh and blood expression of that work. And so often we kind of blithely from pulpits will say things like, remember what God has done, but we need to play that broken record. Because if we talk about it generically, it's going to lose its power. We need to be reminded specifically of the activity that God has made that establishes us as a church, as Christians, and that defines us. It's not just some sort of generic statement about being free or forgiven or redeemed. It's more than that. 
It's more daily than that. It is more embodied than those rather abstract thoughts. And it will bring us in many ways over against the way this world wants life to unfold. That's where we find ourselves today, by the way. On this Advent Eve, it is Christ the King Sunday, which, formally speaking, is a rather new tradition, a new feast that didn't really emerge, and emerged first in the Catholic Church in the 1920s, the mid-1920s. The world reeling from the pain of the catastrophe of the First World War, the disintegration of all of the political alliances and the sort of fragile way the world was being held together through colonialism and all the rest. Everyone that had eyes to see could already see that the pressure was starting to build for another catastrophic world conflict. And the church said, wait a minute. Jesus reigns. That's our hope. Christ is the king. And so eventually that declaration becomes the end of our church calendar. The church calendar begins, by the way, in Advent. And it cycles through the expectation of and the life of and the death of the resurrection of Jesus. So that the first half of the year is pretty much built around the very life of Jesus. The second half of the life uh, the second half of the year is built around the life of the church and the growing of the church in response to the risen Christ. For all sorts of reasons, I set down uh, Christ the King Sunday in service of something like this, and I've got linguistic reasons and, and other reasons as well, reign of Christ. It's a way of articulating what Jesus proclaimed in his own ministry about the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven being near. Talking about the reign of God reaching in to individual lives, individual communities, and, and beginning to spill over, sometimes unseen by a watching world, until oh, something amazing happens before them. But I don't want to unpack that language so much today as to point to something very specific. That the point of all this is that the scriptures tell us a story of hope and they tell us a story of a present reality for us. That the God in whom we live and move and have our being has in Jesus Christ made space for God to get what God wants out of this world. And the power that God grants the church through this wisdom and hope that Paul proclaims, that the church can live that reality out loud and bear witness to the presence of and the love of and the salvation of God. The power that was exerted in Christ. The power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is invoked, not only in the present age but also in the age to come. God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything. For the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. 
A lot of the pictures of Christ the King show a very placid and serene Jesus holding an orb that may be the world, leaning back a bit on his throne, a very flat affect. And if that's the only way that Jesus rules now, I'm not sure it connects with my life. And I'm not sure it connects with our world. Of course, that's not the biblical vision. The reign of Christ is not only that serene detachment that dismisses pain or lostness with a wave of a hand that simply says, ah, God is in control. Now, John 12, for instance, is one of those places where Jesus makes a comment that reveals that there's more going on here. He says, when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. It's clearly a picture of dominion, but those who read John with eyes to see and hear the words with ears to hear understand he's not only referring to some sort of future hope when all comes together, but he is referring very directly to his own exaltation on a cross. And there's no throne there of gold, just splinters and wood and nails, a crown of thorns, a shredded tunic, and a blood-stained purple robe. What would it mean for God to deliver the whole world to his feet there? What does it mean for us to bring ourselves to the reign of Christ there? Because when we approach Jesus at that place and we look up and we see his pierced feet, we find the deep paradox of God's reign that God in Christ has offered everything in love and in sacrifice and that in dying with him, we'll be raised with him. And that's the point today to recognize how and where that reign and that rule and that dominion, that authority resides now, today, when you leave here. It begins when we bring our whole selves to that place and to recognize what God has done in Christ and with open hands to release our lostness and our hopelessness and our pain and our guilt and our hurt and our resentment and everything that has passed that has not served us in living fruitful lives. And with open hands at that place, receiving what God gives us. You know, in 2023, January 1st, we gathered here at the front and we blessed little Aiden Kamara, Shamika's son. And in many ways, that, that vision has sustained me through a lot of 2023. When I felt hopeless or down, I can remember that little baby and gifting that little child and the friendship that we struck with his household. In many ways, maybe it was a, 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 a down payment, a deposit in what was happening among children in our community. I don't know if you noticed, but we needed the nursery today. How exciting. A couple of weeks ago, there were two babies screaming in my ear while I was trying to talk, and I loved it. And I can't help but think of that song because he lives. How sweet to hold a newborn baby. 
feel the pride and joy he gives. Greater still the blessed assurance. Life is with, uh, his life, how does it go? Just because he lives. Ah, the child can face uncertain days because he lives. Because he lives. To honor the reign of Christ in our lives is to come to that place where we can release ourselves to the care of the one who has given us all. And in dying to self, in releasing it all, find what comes next. It is not of our own making. It's an amazing promise that God, in Paul's words, has made us co-laborers in the work that is to come. It's an upside-down sort of kingdom where the king would give the people so much power and authority. It's true. And it's the reason we are here today. Maybe 2024 is going to be that year when there at the foot of that cross, more and more folks find their way to that starting point. Following him into the waters of baptism and continuing that journey. Whatever decision you need to make today, as we conclude this service together, don't let that time be wasted. Offer yourself to the one who holds you close, to the one in whom the entire future is held. Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns in unity with the Holy Spirit, and God Almighty, now and forever. Amen.